A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode, which is part one about London Jewry, has been generously sponsored by... MyJewishLineage.com My Jewish Lineage's team is made up of professional genealogists and family history experts who have extensive research and genealogical experience specializing in Jewish genealogy. Watch your family story come alive as their team unravels family enigmas, overcomes brick walls, and helps discover more about who you are and where you come from. You enjoy the story while my while my while the My Jewish Lineage team does the work for you. And especially since I imagine that listeners of uh, Jewish History Soundbites will benefit from this, as I get many emails uh, all the time about genealogy, and it's not my expertise, so you definitely want to uh, call, um, be in touch with my Jewish lineage and their team. So when you do, mention Jewish History Soundbites, and you can get 10% off. You can get 10% off your first research project of two hours or more. So uh, look into that, follow up on that, and we'll all bring our family histories uh, alive. So before I get into London, uh, London Jewry, the history of Jews in London and England, I just want to read a couple of letters. I recently had another episode about the Tzans. We spoke about Garlitz and Shinov. So there's a, a correction. I mentioned that uh, the second Garlitz Rebbe, or Belisha Halberstam, he visited the United States in 1927, so an astute listener mentioned to me that he actually visited twice. He was there in 1921, six years earlier, and then again in 1927. So amazing. He uh, came more than one time, and then I got a bunch of uh, pronunciation corrections. That was fun. I mentioned Rav Sinai Halberstam, and the correct pr- way to pronounce his town these, uh, you know, Polish towns, Zmigrad, and the Divrei Cheskel was the rabbi in Rozdol, which the in Yiddish was called Rozle, and Yokel, uh, um, Teitelbaum, is pronounced Yoikel, and he asked, he, he informs me, he says, you can ask any Barbeshter Einikel, and they'll confirm with you that it's pronounced Yoikel, so I'm looking around for some Barbeshter Einikels. Um, another letter I got 
As an aside, you mentioned the Svasemis marrying Rebarachal of Garlich's daughter. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Svasemis connection to Tzans preceded that already by his first marriage when he married Rebutal Kamener's daughter. Rebutal was a grandson of the Baruch Tam, so he's related to the Devrechaim. That is 100% correct. Rebutal Kamener's father and the Devrechaim of Sons both married daughters of the Baruch Tam. So the Svasemis on his first marriage was already a great nephew of the Devrechaim of Sons. Excellent. Here's another letter I got. I love these corrections. When referring to the Shinever, you may want to call him by his full name, Yecheskel Shraga. That is what the Hasidim say whenever I've heard it, and I am a descendant of Shinever Hasidim. And then, this is amazing, this is this edition, this is one of my favorite letters in a while. This is just aesthetics. Do you have to say Jewish history soundbites twice, one after the other, at the top of every episode? It sounds awkward. Okay, so I won't say it if it sounds awkward. Um, and of course, stay tuned at the end of the, this episode. We'll have another few questions from the, uh, trivia quiz, the For the Record trivia quiz. Um, um, but that, uh, still an ongoing analyzing, uh, all those questions and answers. And it's going to be going on for another few episodes. So I'll do it at the end. So stay tuned. Now we're going to go along to London Jewish history. And there's really four stages of London or English uh, Jewish history. Um, four or five. There's, there's uh, several stages. I'm, I'm not sure how to how we're going to classify it yet. Um, one is the one that we're going to focus on today: pre-expulsion, the initial Jewish settlement, which was in 1066 with William the Conqueror, and he brings Jews from France. And a little over two centuries later, so the initial uh, uh, period of, of settlement of, of of London Jewry of English Jewry. Was lasted until 1290 when there was the Edict of Expulsion by King Edward I and he expelled all the Jews from England. That was stage one and that's what I'm going to try to focus on today. Stage two, which we'll get to in a future episode, is when Muranos, when, um, when, when, uh, conversos, we'll call them, more correct uh, term and accepted term today. Uh, they they uh, started settling in England following the Spanish expulsion of Jews, and then eventually, and they're living there secretly because Jews were not allowed to live in England, and then eventually there's a reacceptance um, of, of, uh, of, of Jews into England off the books. It wasn't officially that they changed the law during the time of Oliver Cromwell in 1655 by Menashe ben Yisro. Then later on, there's an immigration of German Jews to England that takes place in the 17th and, I'm sorry, the 18th and 19th centuries. And there's a, a rise of the British Jewish community in the 19th century, a very prominent rise, wealthy Jews, and they get emancipated and they get integrated and, and acculturated into English uh, life during the 19th century. Then there's the next stage which is the mass immigration, when Eastern European Jews start to arrive in England at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and then you have, when the Nazis rise to power, some more German Jews come, there's the famous Kindertransport, where the British government allows over 10,000 Jewish children from Germany and Austria, and also a little bit from Czechoslovakia, to uh, come into England at the in the shadow of World War II. Then there's World War II itself, and then the post-war modern uh, Jewish community of London. So there's going to be several stages. Um, each one is interesting, and in fact, someone just sent me recently that... Uh, in 1900, during the peak of when Eastern European Jews were arriving in, in England, 
So, so someone's it's a cute. It's for Pesach. So, someone sent me that there was a item in a in a in the Jewish newspaper in London that if you want to buy wine that's kosher for Pesach, it says you can buy either Hungarian or Palestine wine, or since it's Hungarian, so you can buy Shlivovitz plum brandy, which is all kosher for Pesach, and the Palestine wine has the kosher certification of Rav Shmuel Salant, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, as an ad in the, in the paper then. So there's literally from every period in London Jewish history, there's stories and there's what to talk about. Each one has its own episode. So we want to do London Jewry properly. It'll have to be at least three, maybe four parts. So even though normally I do in... Uh, um, I'm not going to say which podcast we're on because it's going to sound awkward if I keep on repeating it. But normally on this podcast, uh, there, the, the, we, we, I focus on 19th and 20th centuries, 18th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. But I would like to depart from this custom this one time, and perhaps for future times as well, to discuss some medieval Jewish history. In the case of England, I find it so fascinating, and I believe that the Jewish History Soundbites listeners will find it interesting as well. So in this opening episode, we'll focus on until the expulsion. We're going to end with the expulsion in 1290, and also because there's two events from that period that are directly related to Pesach, uh, which I'm going to get to momentarily, and I'm sure that any proud Londoner who would like to have uh, further installments on the history of London Jewry will, will want, would want to sponsor it. So please be in touch with me about uh, sponsorships as well. This episode is also dedicated in honor of the one and only Adrian Garbaz, who's um, very has very strong London roots as well, and um, and for everything that he does. I also want to thank at the outset Rabbi Johnny Rudin. Uh, Rudin for his assistance with the preparation of this episode, for his help with the research and pointing me to sources. Um, it did come a f- couple of days late, this episode, so I want to apologize for that. It was the Ides of March just the other day, um, on uh, so you know things didn't work out right away. It was the art site of Julius Caesar, so um, until I got, uh, that's for another time, so until I got around to England. You know, and, and the one who wrote the play, obviously, was William Shakespeare, so it's related to London. Um, it's really, there's the Jews of England and the Jews of London, and it's, it's, I guess it's kind of two different things, but I'm going to take the liberty of speaking about some general Jewish England stuff and not strictly London, and since I'm Israeli and lots of American listeners out there, so to us it's all the same anyway, England, London, um, so we're going to do, do uh, both. It's interesting, there's a psak in the Shulchan Aruch about Pesach, which quotes an English Rishon. And it's, and it's, um, it's about, if you're planning on reciting and explaining part of the Haggadah in English by your Seder for your children, so you could thank the Re of London for that psak. He's the one who said that you can do the Haggadah in any language, and that, and that, this, that everyone at the table will understand, and he himself would do it belaz, it says, in a foreign language. He probably did it in French, as most of the Jews uh, spoke in those days in England. Uh, they were, came from France, they were Balitoistas from France. And that is the Re of London is the only time an English Rishon is quoted in the entire Shulchan Aruch, is related to Pesach, so that's another reason why I want to do it to Pesach time. Also, one of the most important and seminal events and seminal events in, 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 uh, in uh, English Jewish history, in fact, in Jewish history in general, is the York Massacre at Clifford's Tower um, in uh, 11, 
90, a century before the expulsion, which we'll get to, the whole story of the York Massacre. Um, but it took place. When did, the, when did the York Massacre story take place? On Shabbos HaGadol, which is coming up just in another couple of days. Shabbos HaGadol. And in the English date was yesterday. It was yesterday and two days ago, March 16th and 17th. Uh, so literally, it's these days of the York Massacre, so I think it's very appropriate that I focus on medieval Jewish history this time because of all this context of Pesach time and Shabbos HaGadol that happened during that time. Um, so William the Conqueror, William, Duke of Normandy, he, he invades England, the last successful invasion of England in 1066, the Battle of Hastings, and he's the one who brings the initial Jews, the Jewish community, to from France to England. Norman French, again, are invading England. The Anglo-Saxons are the ones living there at the time, and the Norman French are invading. And uh, and that's when Jewish settlement begins, and it remains there until Edward, King Edward I and the Edict of Expulsion a little over 200 years later in 1290. So why does William the Conqueror bring Jews into England? Because uh, for money lending. Uh, he brings them to, like was common in many European countries at the time, and... Uh, the uh, the Christians were not allowed to practice, you know, loaning at interest, usury, and they needed Jews to do so. And they, the Jews were useful in finance and banking and in, in lend, loaning and in, in money lending, which was that was what it was. It wasn't that sophisticated uh, finance at the time. It was just simply money lending. In fact, um, you know, have I mentioned Shakespeare's play of uh, of uh, Julius Caesar? So another one is uh, the Merchant of Venice which the setting is in Venice, in Italy, but uh, the, the protagonist, the main uh, player in the, in the story of Merchant of Venice is, of course, Shylock. And Shylock is the Jew with a very strong Jewish stereotype, um, you know, a very not, uh, not so favorable, uh, doesn't cast a Jew in favorable light as a moneylender, the pound of flesh, and the whole thing with Antonio. And... Um, Shakespeare never met a Jew. He lived in Elizabethan England in the 1500s and early 1600s when there were no Jews in England. And uh, he didn't travel. And he's using a stereotype that was common because this is a stereotype that lasted for hundreds of years. It's a trope that that they, that they the Jews had and the, the image of a Jew from medieval times, from the Middle Ages when Jews lived in England before the expulsion that that image of Shylock uh, remained. Um, I'm not going to mention any more Shakespearean plays, because if I do, we're going to get to Macbeth, and who knows if the mic will stop working or something like that. Uh, so we'll get to Shakespeare another day. Uh, so, But it happens to be that the Jews were the exclusive moneylenders, and many of them made a fortune in the business, though their situation was always a bit tenuous, but precarious situation. Um, there was a fellow by the name of Aaron of Lincoln. Lincoln was a city in, or is a city in, in uh, England. And he was the richest person in England at the time, probably wealthier than the king himself. And when he dies in 1189, and these are the events that lead up to the York Massacre, actually, the king needed to create a special department in the treasury to deal with his assets, to deal with his estate. Um, and his death was part of the catalyst which led to the York Massacre, which I'll get to. Because it was in, in a way, these things were a way to get rid of debts that were owed. You have to understand the background. The background is that the Jews are the, which is common in in in, in the Middle Ages, was not exclusive to England. Um, the Jews were the property of the king; they literally belonged to him. 
And there are advantages and disadvantages to that. There's advantages that you're at the king's mercy and he officially provides protection and they have access to the king's castles. They have access to the king's highways. Um, they are provided with an element of protection. They have rights and, 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 and legal rights and freedoms that most of the population does not have. In the case of England, it's the Anglo-Saxons, the natives. But in other places in Europe, it's the serfs, it's the lower classes. The Jews are a merchant class; they're a city, they're they're a urban class. So they um, they definitely had more rights and freedoms than than most of the population. But on the other hand, they were at much higher risk because their situation can change moment at a moment's notice. They were always at the king's mercy, and there was always pressure from other parts of society, such as the church such as the mob, such as the lower classes, so there was, and also there were also obligations to the king. In other words, they were the highest taxpayers. They had to uh, finance the king's wars and build monasteries, and, and, uh, and their financing and money lending, the, the money that they made from that had to go uh, to, to finance whatever the, the king needed, and many times this drove them to poverty or even expulsion or pogroms, and they're always caught in between a rock and the hard place between you know the mob, the, the 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 lower classes on one side who see them as representatives of the king, and especially in the case of England, the 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 uh, masses are Anglo-Saxon, and the king, the aristocracy, the nobility is the Norman French who invaded their country, and the Jews are tax collectors, are agents, are managers for the king, and they're also French, they're also Norman French. Uh, so they're also foreigners, and they're seen as agents for the king. So they're not in a good place. Uh, they're the face of, of, of the conqueror. Um, uh, so again, it's, it puts them in a very, very uh, interesting situation. Um, as soon as the king also can find them less useful, again, he's their property, so he could do whatever he wants with them. If he can't tax them anymore, so he can expel them. Um, so it's just as an example of how precarious the situation is for the Jews in England at, at that time, um, there's the blood libel of Nor- Norwich. There's a Jewish community in Norwich and another city in England. And the blood libel, which becomes the rit- you know, this ritual murder, the accusations of ritual murder that plague uh, Jews throughout Europe, throughout the Middle Ages, and even to a certain extent beyond the Middle Ages, it starts in England. It doesn't start in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Germany, it doesn't start in Italy, it doesn't start in Poland, it doesn't start in any of these other countries, it starts in England. In 1144, William of Norwich disappears, and they accuse the Jews, and uh, and essentially it's anti-the king, it's, it's anti-Jewish and it's anti-the king, because the Jews are the foreigners. The local Anglo-Saxons, excuse me, are, uh, the local Anglo-Saxons are, um, are, are accusing the, the Jewish-French uh, because they're representing the French rulers, the Norman French rulers, because they, the, one, the Jews are the mediators. So that causes the problem. And then uh, once the the story of ritual murder is on the scene, so it stays there. It stays there. Um, unfortunately, it spreads in England. It comes up later on in England. Then it spreads to other countries uh, as well. Another story in London is... Um, is one of the Bali Taisis. There were several Bali Taisis uh, during the different crusades that were plaguing uh, Ashkenaz, Germany, and France during the uh, 11th and 12th centuries. So there were Jews who made it from France and Germany to England. 
And there are several Balei Tosifists who came to England at that time as well. Tosifists Chachme Anglia. So one of the ones who came was the Re of Orleans. Uh, Orleans was the city, is a city in France, and the Re, Rabbi Yaakov of Orleans, uh, came to... Uh, most of the Balei Tosifists who came, by the way, were from the, from the school, from the Talmidim, even from the family of Rabbeinu Tam. So the Balei Tosifists in England were from... Uh, from the students and the family and the students of students of Rabbeinu Tam, who was that part of the world of the Bali Tesis. And one of them was the Rio of Orleans. And the Rio of Orleans was killed in a pogrom. It was during the round the coronation of Richard the Lionhearted and, uh, in 11, uh, 1189. And uh, there was pogroms at that time. And, um, and the Rio was killed. Richard the Lionhearted was was during it was Crusade fever it was the time of the Third Crusade, so there was a general religious intolerance. It was increasing at that time. By the way, I drop earlier before I get to that. Before I get back to Richard the Lionhearted, so another prominent personality who lived in England for a period of time was Rabbi Ram Ibn Ezra, very famous Ibn Ezra. He lived there for three years. He traveled a lot. There's a whole, he's a fascinating life. If we ever get to him one day. And he had many, many travels, and we don't even know where he's buried. There's uh, many different versions in Israel and other places. I think even one version says in England, but uh, I don't think uh, any of them have a substantial, you know, proof about where it was in Italy, it was in, it was in France, it was here, it was there, um, and in Spain. Uh, in in uh, in uh, he lived in England from 1158 till 1161, and during the time that he was in England, he wrote. You know, he wrote everything. He wrote Pirushim on the Torah, and he wrote uh, uh, Piyutim, and he wrote poetry, and he wrote Sfarim, and he, he wrote everything under the sun. So one of the things he wrote is what's called an Igeres HaShabbos, uh, defending uh, Shabbos. It was against one of the other Rishayim. There were certain comments that he... F- that he had a dream that was that the Shabbos was upset and he and Shabbos needed a defense, and so uh, it was, it was some some comments that the Rashbam had made about this in his Pirush and Chumash and 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 the, Ibn Ezra wrote the Sigaris Shabbos to defend Shabbos uh, um, while uh, while he was in London in 1159. A fascinating story. So there's another uh, piece of uh, London Jewish history, but um, I mentioned Richard the Lionhearted was he was coronated in. 1189. It's, there's, it's around the time of the Third Crusade. So this is also during the time of the York Massacre. There was a very prominent Jewish community in York. There was 150 Jews who lived there. And this massacre, this massacre is a mass suicide. It took place in Clifford's Tower, which still exists. You can visit it. Um, a, a 150 Jews uh, committed suicide on Shabbos Hagadol, March 16th and 17th, 1190. And this is uh, around, like they said, the time of the Third Crusade with the religious fervor, the Catholic uh, uh, Church. Um, so the, the, uh, it, it, there was a fellow by the name of Richard Melebus who owed money to this deceased Aaron of Lincoln, who I mentioned earlier. And on March 16th, a fire broke out in the town of York. And this Richard, he led an assault on the home of the second greatest moneylender in England. Uh, his name was Benedict of York. The greatest moneylender of England was was Joseph jo- Joseph of York, who we'll get to in a minute. But Benedict, who was an, who had recently passed away, was the agent of this Aaron of Lincoln, who was the wealthiest, originally the wealthiest Jew in in England. So his house was there. So Richard goes to his house with a mob, and he kills Benedict's 
wife and children and, and the house burns down and there's a growing mob, the Jews of York seek out refuge in the castle. And they receive permission from the castle constable and they all go in and they're protected in this fortress. And the castle surrounded by a mob demanding baptism, demanding that all the Jews of York convert. So the head of the Jewish community was a fellow by the name of like I said, Yosha, Joseph of York, who was very wealthy, and he was the head of the community, one of the more prominent Jews in England at the time, he went to the coronation of Richard the Lionheart, and he survived or escaped the London Massacre. There was a pogrom in London during that time. Like I said, the Rio of Orleans was killed then. Um, he had this big, beautiful home in York, and he and the community escaped to Clifford's Tower, and he leads this suicide ceremony. Each head of the household in the Clifford's Tower, when they decided that they're going to commit mass suicide to prevent the mob from forcibly converting them to the Catholic Church. So each head of the household was supposed to arrange the the suicide for their family. Uh, the alternative was to either be killed or converted by the angry mob outside. It was actually decided on by the rabbi of, the, of York. The rabbi of York was a student of Rabbeinu Tam, and he was a French Tosafist himself. His name was Yomtev of Yoani, 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 some French uh, pronounced, pronounced name. He actually composed a piet that we all recite on Yom Kippur night. It's called Umnum Kain. So we still have his uh, uh, um, piet with us today, this Rabbi Yomtev. And he's also cited several times in Taisis and Shas. He's one of the prominent Bali Taisis. He makes a decision about the suicide so that no one should convert. And Yosha starts it off and he, he has to be the one to stab his own wife and children. It's a terrible tragedy. And then Rabbi Yomtev kills him. And the same with every other family. Mr. Rabbeinu Yomtev was in charge of stabbing the men after each man took care of his family, and then he kills himself. And then the tower, they had set fire already to the tower before that, and it was, uh, it destroyed the bodies. So, so the bodies, uh, eventually, many, many, many centuries later, the body, the bones were found and reburied in a whole ceremony, but, uh, they were, lo- they were, you know, burned and destroyed at that time. Um, I'm not. I'm not even sure how we know all the precise details. Something I have to look into one day. Shimon Dubna, the famous Jewish historian, even records the speech that Rabbi Yomtev delivered to his kehila, to his community, before this mass uh, suicide happened. Uh, so I mean, we even officially, at least according to Dubna, we even know the speech. I'm not even sure how we we got all that. But uh, this is the Jewish tradition. And it's one of the most horrifying stories of the Middle Ages, one of the greatest tragedies of Jewish history. 150 killed. Eventually there's a cherem on the city of York that no Jew is allowed to sleep overnight in the city of York. Something that still, uh, I think, is still uh, kept uh, today. Um, of course, the new version of York on the other side of the world did much better with Jews, and New York uh, is... Uh, is uh, home to many. Um, but there are also massacres and pogroms in London and other Jewish cities. There's a kina on Tishabav. I'm not sure if it's recited in all congregations. I'm not even sure if it's printed in every edition of Kinnis, but it does exist about the uh, York Massacre. So there's Jewish communities in Lincoln, in Norwich, in Oxford, in other cities. There's good times, there's worse times. In London, the uh, Jewish taxation got worse under Richard the Lionhearted. There was stricter regulation. They needed to pay more money for his ransom in the Third Crusade when, when uh, Richard needed, King Richard needed to get ransomed. So the Jewish community of London had to pay more money than the city of London. They had to pay enormous amount of money that uh, impoverished uh, elements of the Jewish community. The community in London was 
was organized and recognized by the king and his government throughout this uh, 200-year time, and it was organized on the medieval model of a Jewish community. Autonomy for their own internal law, had their own rabbi, recognized by the government, a chief rabbi, a bezdin, Jewish education. It was similar to other places at the time. In general, there's a lot to talk about the structure of the medieval Jewish community uh, in the pre-modern times, the relation to the outside world, relation to the rulers. It's very interesting. It's very different from from the way Jewish communities developed in, in modern times. The whole world was so different. It's hard to even comprehend a pre-modern society and, and government and, and to even compare it to modern society and government. I remember in Barbara Tuckman's uh, book, A Distant Mirror, she points out that it's like it, the world then, in the 14th century she's talking about, we're talking about even earlier in the 13th and 12th and 11th century, um, the, the world was so different that it's, it's hard to even imagine that it's the same world and the same human beings as the ones we know and, and recognize. Um, so there's a lot to talk about how the setup uh, of, of a Jewish communal structure in, in, in the Middle Ages. Um, and that's, and that will, will, uh, probably develop in, in a future, uh, episode. Uh, so King John. The famous one who signs the Magna Carta at the beginning of the 13th century, see, he squeezes as much money as he could out of the Jews of London. He was, uh, um, in fact, one of the wealthy leaders of the Jewish community has had his teeth extracted, literally yanked out day by day until he paid more money to the treasury. Um, and uh, King John had pressure also from Pope Innocent III to end the Jewish money lending trade, which would essentially completely destroy the Jewish community because they would no longer be able to exist. They were not allowed to enter other occupations. Now, around this time, Jews all over Europe, including England, had to wear a distinctive badge on their clothing to segregate them. And Jews in England had to walk around with a, this, this badge. In 1255, there was another blood libel. The blood libels are not always around Pesach time. We associate them with Pesach and the Matzahs. This one actually took place in August. It was in the summer. Uh, the ritual murder charge was not exclusive to, to the Matzahs. And this one took place in Lincoln. And the boy who was killed was called Little St. Hugh of Lincoln. But this is very important for history because this is the first time that the crown supported the blood libel. And there were Jews who were killed as a result of this uh, frame-up for ritual murder. King Edward uh, I in the 1270s makes it impossible for the Jews to live in England. He changes the usury laws and and it makes it impossible for the Jews to practice money lending and there was no way else for them to sustain themselves. They were barred from the professions, from the guilds. Um, they couldn't own land. And, uh, and the impoverished and shrunken Jewish community several years later in 1290 are officially expelled with the edict of expulsion that the king signs. And this is the first uh, major expulsion by a country, by a sovereign of a country in Jewish history. Um, at this time in, 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 during this time in European Jewish history. Um, so it's very important, very uh, major event. Uh, two centuries before the Spanish expulsion. This is one century before the French uh, expulsion of its Jews. So it, it had been getting worse over the whole 1200s, but then that final decisive uh, moment when they're expelled is, uh, you know, even though the population wasn't that large, it was about 3,000 Jews living in London, living in England at the time. There are other sources that give a bit of a higher number. 
Um, it had been more definitely at its peak. Now it's a little bit of smaller numbers, but it's all relative because uh, um, 3,000 at that time in the Middle Ages was a significant uh, Jewish population. They were expelled from the famous Tower of London. Anyone who goes to London is one of the tourist sites. So that was the that was the Umschlagplatz. Like the Jews were deported to the camps during the Holocaust. So the Tower of London uh, was the point of expulsion. That's where the Jews were expelled from. In fact, they had to even pay an expulsion tax, a head tax, to to be expelled. And with that tax. They built one of the towers, the government, the king built one of the towers in uh, the complex called the St. Thomas Tower. So if you go to the Tower of London and you see the St. Thomas Tower, it was built with Jewish money that was taken from them when they were expelled. And that was the point that Jews left uh, England uh, for for many hundreds of years. Um so, excuse me. So, officially, Jews did not live in England for hundreds of years afterwards. They, there were those who lived there secretly, uh, Muranos, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Conversos. Uh, and then there's the return by Menashe ben Yisrael, the, Sp- you know, the Spanish and Dutch Jewish communities during Oliver Cromwell when there's no monarchy. And it didn't really change the law, it just was to look the other way, which is a good thing because when King Charles would have taken back the throne, he would have changed the law back. Uh, not allowing Jews again. But since it was all unofficial when Cromwell uh, decided to look the other way and allow Jews to resettle in England, which we'll get to, um, it remained unofficial even when Charles took back the throne. And then we have the Sephardic Jews living in London, the Bevismarck Synagogue, Moses Montefiore, and later Rothschild, and things really changed in the 19th century with the emancipation of the Jewish community in in, uh, in England and repealing of the old uh, medieval laws, and Jews rise to prominence and get titles and go into Parliament, and Benjamin Disraeli becomes Prime Minister, and he's descended from Jews, even though he's officially non-Jewish. That's all for part two. Um, And then part three will have the immigration from Eastern Europe and all the dynamic uh, changes for London Jewry. So that was um, part one of the history of Jews in England and London. And now I'd like to, just a couple of minutes, I see it's still already pretty late. Um, I'll just do a few questions from the, for the record, uh, trivia quiz that we ran over Purim in the Mishpacha magazine. So the question we're up to is, which one of these rabbinic legends never served as the Rosh Hashiva of the Taimchei Tamimim network of Chabad? A. Rav Yisrael Gusman, B. Rav David Pavarsky, C. Rav Yitzchak Kutner, D. Rav Pinchas Hirschprung. And the, the reason this is an interesting question is because none of those were officially Lubavitcher Hasidim. Uh, and uh, three of them served as Rosh Yeshiva in Taimchei uh, Tamimim. Gustman served in Crown Heights in the in headquarters. Rabbi David Havarsky served in a in a Taimchei um, Tamimim in Tel Aviv. Rabbi Pinchas Hirschprung in Montreal, and uh, he was close already with the Taimchei Tamimim crowd in Shanghai. Uh, there was a whole, the, the Chachmei Lublin. Uh, yeshiva had a relationship with Taimchei Tamimim Yeshiva in Shanghai. So the only one who did not serve is Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner. He was not uh, Rashiva Taimchei Tamimim. Next question was the 1949-1950 emergency airlift of nearly 50,000 Jews from Yemen to Israel dubbed Operation Magic Carpet was primarily carried out by this airline. And uh, A, El Al, B, Arkea, C, Alaskan Airlines, D, United Airlines. I thought no one would know it because I didn't know it. Uh, that's because I'm arrogant, and I assume that anything I don't know, uh, so no one else will know. I, subsequently, I found out from quite a few listeners who told me that, of course we knew it. What do you mean? It's an easy tidbit. Of course we knew it. Why not? 
So, you know, good for you. <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, thing to know. And of course, it's very important to know it. Um, in the archaea, obviously, it can't be because it didn't exist. Elal barely existed. It was just getting started, so it wouldn't have been Elal either. Um, I'm assuming United existed. But the actual answer is Alaskan Airlines. They're the ones who did it. Uh, fascinating story. These, uh, um, the, um, many of the Yemenite uh, Jews uh, thought uh, that they were coming they had never seen an airplane before they thought it coming on eagle's wings and Mashiach was here and the Beis HaMikdash was rebuilt it was a, you know, it was an amazing uh, experience for Alaskan Airlines and it was still during the War of Independence they were you know, bring, literally flying them through uh, desert sand and and artillery and shooting from the Egyptians and the, and the Jordanians and and uh, incredible stories uh, there with Alaskan Airlines and it's not the only emergency airlift they did. They also ran the Berlin airlift and they also brought Jews uh, out of Shanghai with the communist takeover in the late 1940s. The last Jews living in Shanghai at the time. And uh, so Alaskan Airlines has a place in Jewish history as well. Um, during the interwar period, thousands of people from far, near and far would leave their families and travel at great expense to gather at the kever of this tzaddik on his yard site. A, Reb of Kerestir, B, Reb Nachman of Breslau, C, the Balshemtiv, D, none of the above. And the correct answer is none of the above. If there was someone who thousands went at their kever of the yard site during the interwar period, it was the Nayim Ali Melech, the Rebbe of Melech of Lezhensk. But we didn't give him as one of the options. Reb of Kerestir, he, he existed and he had a kever, but the... Uh, the popularity wasn't invented yet. The marketing hadn't been done yet, and it was very localized. Um, it wasn't that you know immense as it was uh, as it is today, or or as it was for for other people at the time. So Reb Shiloh was not its uh, at its prime yet. Reb Nachman of Breslov and the Baal Shem Tev may have been, but we will never know because they were behind the Iron Curtain during the interwar period and no one was able to get there, except for a few who with great uh, Messiris Nefesh did so, who lived there, who lived in the Ukraine underneath the Soviets, under the Soviets. Um, so, um, but for the for the masses, it was impossible to get to. Next one. Who was the first Mashkiach at Yeshiva Sarbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan? Uh, a, Reb Moshe Aaron Poleof, B, Reb Yerucham Gorelik, C, Reb Yaakov Eshelesen, D, Reb David Bashevkin. It's interesting because Virgil Shachter has said that, that YU was named Rabbeinu Yitzchak Khanan right after Rabbeinu Yitzchak Khanan's specter was Nifter. And it was, it was because there were Jews from Kovna, but it was possibly also a way of signaling that they were not a Musr Yeshiva. They saw themselves as more closely associated with Valajan than a Musr Yeshiva. Um, so Meshgiach, Meshkiach and Rabbi Yitzchak Khanan, you know, has to has to fit. It's also interesting because Rabbi Yitzchak Gorelik is often seen as a Meshkiach type figure uh, because he was often at odds with the rest of the administration regarding certain customs at uh, at YU. But he was not the first uh, Meshkiach. The correct answer is Rabbi Yaakov Meshe Lesson, a Talmud of the Altar Slabatka. He was the Meshkiach. Of course, uh, Reb David Bashevkin um, was and is a prominent Meshkiach, not just for Rabbi Yitzchak Khanan, but for uh, for the Jewish community worldwide, and um, and he has his place, and we're not talking about the top five mashgichim in Rabbi Yitzchak Hanan. So Rabbi David Bashevkin is is going to have to be for another list. Um, when the state of Israel was founded in 1948, this mecca of Jewish life contained a higher Jewish population than the Jewish state. 
A. Newark. B. The Bronx. C. Baltimore. D. Borough Park. The correct answer is the Bronx, which had, had over 800,000 Jews living there in one little borough of New York City on the Grand Concourse in 1948. Most people thought that it was Newark, but it peaked earlier in the 1930s, and also it never had nearly as many Jews as the Bronx did. Um, and of course, Borough Park was not... Uh, not not as not as big at the time in the 1940s, and uh, Baltimore never had that many Jews either. Um, during his final years, the Chavetz Chaim made plans to leave Raden and settle in down in this city. A. Yerushalayim, B. Muncie, C. Petach Tikva, D. Vilna. Vilna was right near Raden. He did not plan on settling in Vilna. He always killed Vilna, his second home. He loved Vilna. He grew up there actually to a certain extent. Uh, Muncie obviously was a joke. Uh, he did not plan on settling in Yerushalayim. He planned on settling in Petach Tikva. He actually had someone buy a home for him. He, he was there. He was, he was almost there. That's enough for now. We'll have more questions after next episode. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, trips, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Chase Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.